Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. This is Jan Fran. And if you're hanging out for new seasons of your favourite shows and films, you might be waiting a little bit longer than you might like. That's because Hollywood writers are on strike and shows such as Stranger Things, Hacks, Family Guy, The Game of Thrones spin-off, House of the Dragon and a whole bunch more have paused production. The Writers Guild of America, that's the union that represents more than 11,000 writers of films and TV shows, has held protests mainly in New York and LA for the last two weeks. It says the film and television industry has changed so much since the last writer's strike in 2007, but that pay and conditions have not kept up. We don't want to be on strike. I think everyone would rather go back to work and earn a paycheck and make work that they're really proud of. Yeah, we're going to chat to one of the writers who's been protesting a little bit later in the show to get the full picture and what it means for your fave movies and TV shows. But first, as always... Big stories of the day. It is Thursday, May 18. I'm joined by Rihanna Patrick. Prince Harry, Meghan and her mother have been involved in what they call a near-catastrophic car chase with paparazzi in New York, lasting more than two hours. I don't think there's many of us who don't recall how uh, his mom uh, died and it would be horrific to lose an innocent bystander during a chase like this. That's New York Mayor Eric Adams there. No injuries or arrests have been reported, but there are claims that the chase involved half a dozen cars with reckless driving, including going through red lights, driving on the pavement and reversing down a one-way street. And it must have just been terrifying, Jan, if you're in that situation. Well... I should note the claims have come from Harry and Meghan themselves. And I was reading this article on on the BBC about it and the BBC sort of said, well, we can't exactly verify the claims. Um, but one really wild part of the story is that at some point, Harry, Meghan, her mum and a security officer flagged down a taxi, just a regular yellow New York taxi. Uh, they hop in, they start driving around for about 10 minutes, but then they're spotted by the paparazzi And the security officer says, no, we need to go back to using our our cars again. And the cab driver who picked them up, he told the Washington Post that he picked them up about 11pm, just like any any other fare in New York. And he said that he never felt like he was particularly in danger as he took them around and, and he wouldn't necessarily call it a chase. But I do have to say he, he was only driving them around for 10 minutes. But can you imagine being that cab driver? You're just zipping around New York on a, on a regular night. You're like, oh, there's Harry and Meekin. Uh, yeah, jump into my cab, sir, madam. I'll, I'll drive you around in this paparazzi fray. What a I time. feel like it's a New York story, right? I feel like that could only happen in New York with a cab driver. It's such a New York story, yeah. And these two were attending an awards ceremony um, in the city, which is a very rare public appearance that they made um, together. So that's why there was so much interest. And of course, Jen, they've had this ongoing issue of security after they left Britain and the British government stripped them of paying for that and the US government wouldn't step in and do it. And so they've been talking about how they've been funding their own security. Do you think this is, in a way, uh, them trying to maybe get security back with someone else paying for it? Uh, I mean, I don't know who would at this point. The United, they're not, you know, US citizens necessarily. Well, Megan is, but there's no reason the US would pay for it. And Britain has been very clear that they're not going to pay for their security anymore. So I don't know who 
I don't know who will step up exactly, but good luck, I guess. A truck driver at the centre of a horrific school bus crash near Melbourne has been granted bail. 49-year-old Jamie Gleeson has been handed four dangerous driving charges, but police expect more to come. He told court light was in his eyes when the bus was struck from behind, pushing it sideways before tipping it onto a grass shoulder at the intersection. More than 40 children were on the bus with seven children having to be rushed to hospital with serious injuries on Tuesday, who are now in a stable condition. They've received life-changing injuries, including crushed limbs, while two have had hand and limb amputations. We just saw the kids just screaming and there was smoke and dust and we found kids that were stuck. So we jumped in the bus and we were just trying to help them. You know, they were stuck under the bus with their, with their arms and that and we just had to stay with them. That was local Cameron Chalmers speaking to the ABC there. And Fran, he was one of those two tradies who saw the crash and ran in and started to pull the sunroof off the bus to try to get children out of the bus. I know. This is such a horrific story, isn't it? I mean, road safety advocates are now calling for mandatory seatbelts on school buses in Victoria. So um, under the current rules, they're not legally required on school buses and when they are legally required, the onus is on the passengers to use them rather than the driver. But it's just, it's such an awful story that I think, um, you know, anything that could possibly prevent such horrific injuries from, from occurring again is probably can only be a good thing. And the quad leaders meeting that was meant to be happening in Sydney next week has officially been cancelled. And I spoke today with Prime Minister Albanese of Australia and a short time ago and let him know what was going on. That was Joe Biden there, but it is expected that the leaders will get a chance to speak at this weekend's G7 summit in Japan. And Biden has also extended an invitation to Albo to visit the White House later this year. And that meeting, of course, Fran, was supposed to be between Australia, India, the US and Japan, where they would discuss Indo-Pacific issues around security. Uh, and now it looks like there'll be that side meeting at the G7 instead. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure Anthony Albanese is disappointed because he's been touting this as, you know, a thing to look forward to and to have it cancelled essentially last minute is not great. But I spare a thought for PNG because they're very disappointed that Joe Biden is not popping in to see them. It would have been the first visit by a US president to the country ever. The PM has expressed Real disappointment that Biden won't be there, particularly because the two countries are, um, as we mentioned yesterday, signing a security pact as well that will allow for sort of more access for US military in and around that area. So, yes, we're disappointed, but so are others. One of the country's biggest music festivals has been canned for the third time in four years. The organisers of the Falls Festival have taken to social media, announcing that the annual event in Melbourne, Byron Bay and Fremantle this New Year's Eve has been cancelled to rest and recover. Jan, it's just not a great situation for festivals at the moment. No, well, this one has had um, particular trouble. So anyone who's been to Falls will know it started in Lawn in Victoria in 1993. So it's been going on in that particular location at least for 20-something years. In 2019, though, it was cancelled because of bushfire. And then, of course, the pandemic happened. So 2020 and 2021 were also cancelled. That was due to COVID. Last year, it was held in Melbourne proper, as in in the city, but now organisers really need to find a new home for this place and they've been blocked around a couple of options. So it seems like they need a bit of a reset 
which is what they're saying this pause is about because the sort of the future of the of the festival is kind of is in a bit of a limbo at the moment which is sad i mean i've never been to falls but i've heard it's fun Oh, it always looks good. So if you were planning on ringing in the new year for 2024 there, that's not going to happen. Well, no, not not in not in some locations, but there's been spin-offs of of the festival for many years now in in other locations as well. So just k- keep an eye out. A Nepali Sherpa has scaled Mount Everest for a record 27th time, beating his own record. The 53-year-old climbed the 8,849-metre mountain early yesterday morning along the traditional southeast ridge route, guiding a foreign climber. Kami Rita Sherpa scaled Everest for the first time in 1994 and has climbed it almost every year since. I think good on him. Oh my God, this story is, uh, okay, Everest, 8,849 metres. By comparison, Kosciuszko, which is our highest mountain, mm-hmm. is 2,228 metres. Uh, like, there's no comparison. I can't even climb a big hill. Um, <laughs> I remember I was in Nepal, I shot a documentary in Nepal in 2019 and, you know, when you're up even in at the foot of the Himalayas, is you're quite high altitude-wise. So already it's a little bit sort of difficult to breathe. You feel like you're really working to even just walk. And I remember being invited to a temple where there was a very long flight of stairs that we had to climb up to get to the temple. And we were being escorted by these two 70-year-old men. And they were just zipping up those stairs. And I was like... <sighs> <laughs> okay. No, no, I'm good. I don't need any help. <laughs> it took me about 45 minutes to get up this one flight of stairs, nowhere near <laughs> Mount Everest, mind you. So holy hell, a record 27 times. That's that's a, an amazing feat. All right, that's it for our headlines for today. We're heading to New York to talk about the writer's strike. That there is the sound of Hollywood writers across the United States striking for better pay and better conditions. They have been on strike for two weeks and counting. And this has seen a bunch of TV shows halt production and some even go off air. So let's get more info on what this strike is about from a writer who's taken to the streets of New York. Josh Gondelman is a comedian. He spent the last decade writing for a number of high-profile TV shows. He joins us now. Josh, welcome to The Briefing. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your writing career. Of course, Seth, and thank you for having me. I'm a comedian and a television writer. I've mostly written late-night comedy for TV, so I've written for... Last week tonight with John Oliver, and I worked on the Showtime seasons of Jesus and Marrow. So that's been about the last 10 years of my career, a bit split between writing books and doing stand up and then a lot of television writing. I can't help but notice that you're sounding um, a little bit hoarse. Your voice is, is a little bit dry. Why is that? Yeah, I've been out on the picket lines every morning, basically, that I've been home in New York. And so uh, it's a lot of chanting. And I, because I'm, I think, a little bit more extroverted than some, I've been on megaphone chant leading duty. And so I'm drinking some tea now, but I don't think it's quite taken hold yet. <laughs> okay, so why are you striking? 
That's a great question. So every three years, the Writers Guild of America, the union for writers, negotiates the terms of its minimum basic agreement, the collective bargaining agreement with the big association of studios. And this year we came in with what we thought were a pretty reasonable set of proposals that would help ensure that writing stayed a sustainable career and didn't become kind of a gig economy type job. And that would just give writers a little slice of the enormous corporate profits that our work helps to generate. And they came back and basically said, no, we are not going to grant you these deserved and reasonable concessions. Obviously, that's coming from my point of view, but I happen to think I'm correct. Talk us through some of the things that the uh, union wants. What are some of the demands here that are being made? When TV and movies made a lot of transition from theaters and and broadcast to streaming services, that changed the way that writers are paid. The residuals for re-airing stuff is lower. There's less hope for like syndication of a, of a TV show. Movies that do huge numbers on streaming services, there's no real back-end compensation, right? There's no like additional compensation for writing something that's a hit. So that's a big part of it, right? Just making the compensation for streaming work more in line with what we've historically been paid for, for work that is seen by millions of people and makes billions of dollars for this industry. And then there are things like writer's rooms have been shrinking, show budgets have been going up while writer compensation has been going down. When you're a writer producer, the median compensation for those kinds of jobs has decreased 4% in the last 10 years and adjusted for inflation, it's gone down 23%. So we're really just trying to shore up in a lot of ways, these contracts that don't reflect the realities of the industry and are moving towards making writing a more volatile career. There's another thing that I keep reading about Mm -hmm. unions wanting uh, some kind of, I guess, reworking of a thing called mini rooms. Can you tell us what that is and why the union wants change in that area? As you've probably noticed, a lot of shows and a lot of American shows, right, are, are shorter seasons than ever before. So already writers are working fewer weeks and having to hop gig to gig more frequently than they did in the past. And these mini rooms are ways to get just a few writers doing some of the hardest work of a season of television, really breaking open the season before the production begins before the show is even greenlit in many uh, instances. And the compensation for mini rooms for experienced writers is much lower than maybe they're used to, much lower than they their quote is for working on a show that's in production. There's no guarantee that they'll stay on and work on the series. Uh, the newer writers won't get on-set experience because they're just there to help break the story open and maybe scurry off and write one script. So it's really the increase in mini rooms is depressing wages for writers and it's denying writers the experience to grow their careers It's stretching writers thin too. It's fewer writers doing more of the hardest work faster. And the compensation just doesn't reflect that. For someone who's got no idea sort of how writing fits into the overall scheme of a film or a television show, can you just kind of explain that to us? Where are writers in the ecosystem? That's a great question. So writing is done from the show's conception, right? That's writing work is to create the concept of a show through breaking a season, which means kind of plotting out the arc of a season of narrative TV. And that's for narrative work, but for comedy variety and for 
narrative as well for television. There's scripts that are written, obviously, that's pretty familiar. And then writing often happens through production. There are writers on set in many instances that help reshape if something doesn't work or if you think you can maybe come up with a better joke on the fly. There there are writers on set. So it's really, in a lot of cases, soup to nuts writers are involved. And, and you're seeing how central writers are to the process with the way that the late night shows, right, have already gone off the air or are showing reruns. Because when there's a show that has to go on that night, someone has to write the scripts. And without the writers, nobody can do that. So that's why we're not seeing new episodes of The Tonight Show and Saturday Night Live and Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. You've been protesting and getting out in the street in in New York, and this has sort of been the case now for approximately two weeks. What is the vibe like where you are in the protests among the riders? Well, there's an incredible level of solidarity, both within the Writers Guild, right? We don't want to be on strike. I think everyone would rather go back to work and earn a paycheck and make work that they're really proud of. But what's happening now is we didn't get this fair contract, so we're out there on the streets. And we voted, knowing that this this could happen, we voted to authorize this strike by a um, a margin of 97 point. That was the affirmative vote, 97.85%. So there was an enormous level of solidarity. And so you see that with the writers. I think everybody is really energized to get a fair contract. What's been doubly exciting and doubly heartening is the way that other unions in entertainment have come out. SAG-AFTRA, which is a lot of actors, performers, they've come out in huge numbers. IATSE, the crews, have been really respectful of picket lines and, and Teamsters, right? The truckers hauling equipment and, and materials to and from sets and members of the DGA, the Directors Guild. But then even people outside of entertainment unions. There have been people from the Starbucks union, workers from the Amazon union, freelance musicians union have all come out to support us. And that's been really thrilling because I think it shows that people understand that what we're dealing with isn't just writers versus studios, right? It's workers versus corporations. And what we're looking for is just to be paid commensurate with the value that our work is generating. And I think that's what all working people can really relate to is that struggle and that pressure. Right. How do you see this resolving? Well, I mean, the kind of union maxim, right, is how long are we willing to stay out there is a day longer than they're willing to hold out. And so I really think that so many of these points that are on on the table are so foundational to the future of writing. It's not just for us. It's not just for me. It's for people who want to have careers in writing in the future and for the future of the industry. So this is a really important thing. We didn't take this lightly. We didn't walk out lightly. This is something that we're, we're really tenacious about. We feel a lot of firmness, a lot of solidarity. And so there's a real sense of the the importance of this moment for the future of our industry and the careers of people who do the kind of work that we do. Right. So it's bigger than just um, a few people that have had a few issues on a few jobs. It's an existential, I guess, crisis that the writing career is facing. Would you say that's too much or would you agree? That's an extremely good way to put it. You know, the studios are really trying to strip away kind of all the protections that we've fought for almost a century, right, to provide for writers. Again, I think this is a common thing, right, where workers are used to being treated a certain way. The more 
corporations consolidate and the more they're accountable to year over year growth for shareholders and stakeholders, the less the people at the top care about how the workers are being treated. And this is all in the face of these like enormous CEO compensation packages. Like last year, 2022, eight or nine CEOs combined made over $770 million, which is substantially more than the writers are asking for, for all 11,000 plus of our members total. So I think there is this real existential threat where you see money being funneled upward to the CEOs and, and investors and the workers being spread thin further and further, work not paying a living wage, essentially, for a lot of people. And so it is really a threat to the idea of being a television writer or a film writer as a sustainable career that lets you... And we're not talking buy a mansion. We're not talking uh, own a yacht. This is about being able to pay rent or a mortgage, being able to provide for a family. These are like basic things that I think everyone can relate to. So why should somebody in Australia listening to this now care about writers going on strike in a completely different country? Of course. Well, I think this is um, outside of, you know, my pleasing exotic accent, I imagine you're saying. But- <laughs> I think that it and is, you're very like I, hoarse. Uh, some yes, somehow I know, very kind of a sexy a voice. Husky, let's smoky, admit it. Yeah, like kind of a, a jazzy, croony voice. I think that, like I said already, this is not a unique issue to writers, and it's not a unique issue to Americans. I think increasingly, a few giant corporations are dominating both art and like global commerce. Right, like Amazon is everywhere and and they make television and film now and, and this is not to single them out but i think the, this growth and consolidation of of giant companies is really affecting workers worldwide and so one of the things that i think some people say well like what about my job don't i also deserve these kind of protections that the writers are fighting for and we all to a person say yes absolutely i hope people see that this is all part of like the kind of big struggle for like working people, which is most people against corporate interests, which is a few people who are hoarding a lot of resources and money for themselves on the backs of the work that other people do. That was writer Josh Gondelman talking to us from New York about why he has joined the writer's strike. And it's very interesting to see him talk about the writer's strike, not really as an issue for a bunch of individual writers who are looking for certain conditions in their particular jobs, but rather as a a much bigger crisis facing workers and company bosses. And it's a crisis that he sees uh, happening all over the world. Listener.